Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman. It's known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 1. It's numbers 41 and 42, and it has to do with election, unconditional Election. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, September 2, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England. The text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Second Thessalonians 2, again, verses 13 and 14. If there were no other text in the sacred word except this one, I think we should all be bound to receive and acknowledge the truthfulness of the great and glorious doctrine of God's ancient choice of his family. But there seems to be an inveterate prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine. And although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians with some caution, others with pleasure, yet this one seems to be most frequently disregarded and discarded. In many of our pulpits, it would be reckoned a high sin and treason to preach a sermon upon election because they could not make it what they call a practical discourse. I believe they have erred from the truth therein. Whatever God has revealed, he has revealed for a purpose. There is nothing in Scripture which may not, under the influence of God's Spirit, be turned into a practical discourse, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for some purpose of spiritual usefulness. It is true it may not be turned into a free will discourse, that we know right well, but it can be turned into a practical free grace discourse, and free grace practice is the best practice when the true doctrines of God's immutable love are brought to bear upon the hearts of saints and sinners. Now, I trust this morning some of you who are startled at the very sound of this word will say, um, I will give it a fair hearing. I will lay aside my prejudices. I, I will hear what this man has to say. Do not shut your ears and say at once, It's high doctrine. Who has authorized you to call it high or low? Why should you oppose yourself to God's doctrine? Remember what became of the children who found fault with God's prophet and exclaimed, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! Say nothing against God's doctrines, lest haply some evil beast should come out of the forest and devour you also. There are other woes beside the open judgment of heaven. Take heed that these fall not on your head. Lay aside your prejudices. Listen calmly. Listen dispassionately. Hear what Scripture says. And when you receive the truth, if God should be pleased to reveal and manifest it to your souls, do not be ashamed to confess it. To confess you were wrong yesterday is only to acknowledge that you are a little wiser today. 
and instead of being a reflection on yourself, it is an honor to your judgment and shows that you are improving in the knowledge of the truth. Do not be ashamed to learn and to cast aside your old doctrines and views, but take up that which you may more plainly see to be in the word of God. But if you do not see it to be here in the Bible, whatever I may say or whatever authorities I may plead, I beseech you, as you love your souls, reject it. And if from this pulpit you ever hear things contrary to this sacred word, remember that the Bible must be the first and God's minister must lie underneath it. We must not stand on the Bible to preach, but we must preach with the Bible above our heads. After all we have preached, we are well aware that the mountain of truth is higher than our eyes can discern. Clouds and darkness are round about its summit, and we cannot discern its topmost pinnacle. Yet we will try to preach it as well as we can. But since we are mortal and liable to err, exercise your judgment, try the spirits, whether they are of God. And if on mature reflection on your bended knees you are led to disregard election, a thing which I consider to be utterly impossible, then forsake it. Do not hear it preached, but believe and confess whatever you see to be God's word. I can say no more than, than that by way of introduction. Now first, I shall speak a little concerning the truthfulness of this doctrine. God hath from the beginning, it says, chosen you to salvation. Secondly, I shall try to prove that this election is absolute because it says he hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Not for sanctification, but through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And thirdly, this election is eternal because the text says, God hath from the beginning chosen you. Fourthly, it is personal. He hath chosen you. Then we will look at the effects of the doctrine, see what it does. And lastly, as God may enable us, we will try and look at its tendencies and see whether it is indeed a terrible and licentious doctrine. And we will take the flower, and like true bees, we will see whether there be any honey whatever in it, whether any good can come of it, or whether it's an unmixed, undiluted evil. Well, first, I must try and prove that the doctrine is true. And let me begin with an Argumentum ad hominem, that is, I will speak to you according to your different positions and stations. There are some of you who belong to the Church of England, and I'm happy to see so many of you here, uh, though now and then I certainly say some very hard things about church and state, yet I love the old church, for she has in her communion many godly ministers and eminent saints. Now, I know you are great believers in what the articles declare to be sound doctrine. I will give you a specimen of, of what they utter concerning election, so that if you believe them, you cannot avoid receiving election. Now, I will read a portion of the 17th article upon predestination and election. Now, I'm quoting. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby, before the foundations of the world were laid, he has continually decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation 
those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to God's purpose by his Spirit, working in due season. They, through grace, obey the calling. They are justified freely. They are made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works. And at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. End of quote. Now, I think any churchman, if, if he be a sincere and honest believer in Mother Church, must be a thorough believer in election. True, if he turns to certain other portions of the prayer book, he will find things contrary to the doctrines of free grace and altogether apart from scriptural teaching. But if he looks at the articles, he must see that God has chosen his people unto eternal life. I am not so desperately enamored, however, of that book as you may be, and I have only used this article to show you that if you belong to the establishment of England, you should at least offer no objection to this doctrine of predestination. Another human authority, whereby I would confirm the doctrine of election, is the old Waldensian Creed. If you read the creed of the old Waldenses, emanating from them in the midst of the burning heat of persecution, you will see that these renowned professors and confessors of the Christian faith did most firmly receive and embrace this doctrine as being a portion of the truth of God. I have copied from an old book one of the articles of their faith, and I quote, that God saves from corruption and damnation those whom he has chosen from the foundations of the world, and not for any disposition, faith, or holiness that he foresaw in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ Jesus his Son, passing by all the rest according to the irreprehensible reason of his own free will and justice. End of quote. So it is no novelty that I am preaching, no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines which are called by nickname Calvinism, but which are surely and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. By this truth, I make a pilgrimage into the past, and as I go, I see father after father, confessor after confessor, martyr after martyr standing up to shake hands with me. Were I a Pelagian, that is, a believer in the doctrine of free will, I should have to walk for centuries all alone, and here and there a heretic of no very honorable character might rise up and call me brother. But taking these things to be the standard of my faith, I see the land of the ancients peopled with my brethren. I behold multitudes who confess the same as I do, and acknowledge that this is the religion of God's own church. I also give you an extract from the old Baptist confession. We are Baptists in this congregation, the greater part of us at any rate, and we like to see what our own forefathers wrote. Some 200 years ago, the Baptists assembled together and published their articles of faith, 
to put an end to certain reports against their orthodoxy, which had gone forth to the world. So I turned to this old book, which I have just published, The Baptist Confession of Faith, and I find the following as the third article, and I'm quoting, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. These angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind who are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any other thing in the creature as condition or cause moving him thereunto. End of quote. Well, as for these human authorities, I care not one rush for all three of them. I care not what they say, pro or con, as to this doctrine. I've only used them as a kind of confirmation to your faith to show you that while I may be railed upon as a heretic and as a hyper-Calvinist, after all, I am backed up by antiquity. All the past stands by me. I do not care for the present. Give me the past and I will hope for the future. Let the present rise up in my teeth. I will not care. What though a host of the churches of London may have forsaken the great cardinal doctrines of God, it matters not. If a handful of us stand alone in an unflinching maintenance of the sovereignty of our God, if we are beset by enemies, I, and even by our own brethren, who ought to be our friends and helpers, it matters not. If we can but count upon the past, the noble army of martyrs, the glorious host of confessors, are our friends. The witnesses of truth stand by us. With these for us, we will not say that we stand alone, but we may exclaim, Lo, God hath reserved unto himself seven thousand that have not bowed the knee unto Baal. But the best of all is, God is with us. The great truth is always the Bible, and the Bible alone. My hearers, you do not believe in any other book than the Bible, do you? If I could prove this from all the books in Christendom, if I could fetch back the Alexandrian library and prove it thence, you would not believe it any more, but you surely will believe what is in God's word. I have selected a few texts to read to you. I love to give you a whole volley of texts when I am afraid you will distrust a truth so that you may be too astonished to doubt if you do not in reality believe. Just let me run through a catalog of passages where the people of God are called elect. Of course, if the people are called elect, there must be election. <laughs> if Jesus Christ and his apostles were accustomed to style believers by the title of elect, we must certainly believe that they were so. Otherwise, the term does not mean anything. Jesus Christ says, except that the Lord had shortened those days, the final days, no flesh should be saved. 
but for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Again, false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Another, then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. In Luke 18, shall not God avenge his own elect who day and night cry unto him, though he bear long with them? Well, together with many other passages which might be selected, wherein either the word elect or chosen or foreordained, or appointed, is mentioned, or the phrase, my sheep, or, or some similar designation, showing that Christ's people are distinguished from the rest of mankind. But you have concordances. I will not trouble you with texts. Throughout the epistles, the saints are constantly called the elect. In Colossians, we find Paul saying, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. When he writes to Titus, he calls himself Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Peter says, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then if you turn to John, you'll find he is very fond of the word. He says, the elder to the elect lady. He speaks of our elect sister. And we know where it is written, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you. They were not ashamed of the word in those days. They were not afraid to talk about it. Nowadays, the word has been dressed up with diversities of meaning. And persons have mutilated and marred the doctrine so that they have made it a, a very doctrine of devils, I do confess. And many who call themselves believers have gone to that rank antinomianism, but not Withstanding this, why should I be ashamed of it if men do rest it? W-R-E-S-T, rest it. We love God's truth on the rack as well as when it is walking upright. If there were a martyr whom we loved before he went on the rack, we should love him more still when he was stretched there. When God's truth is stretched on the rack, we do not call it falsehood. We love not to see it racked, but we love it even when racked because we can discern what its proper proportions ought to have been if it had not been racked and tortured by the cruelty and inventions of men. Let me just add here that the rack was an instrument of torture of those persons of the Middle Ages who tortured God's people. If you will read many of the epistles of the ancient fathers, you'll find them always writing to the people of God as the elect, Indeed, the common conversational term used among many of the churches by the primitive Christians to one another was that of the elect. They would often use the term to one another, showing that it was generally believed that all God's people were manifestly elect. But now for the verses that will positively prove the doctrine. Open your Bibles. Turn to John fifteen sixteen. There you will see that Jesus Christ has chosen his people. For he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. 
that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then in the 19th verse, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then in the 17th chapter and the 8th and 9th verses, For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are thine. Turn to Acts thirteen forty-eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, they may try to split that passage into hairs if they like, but it says, ordained to eternal life in the original, as plainly as it possibly can. And we do not care about all the different commentaries thereupon. You scarcely need to be reminded of Romans 8, because I trust you are all well acquainted with that chapter and understand it by this time. In the 29th and following verses, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. Whom he called, he also glorified. Excuse me, justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It would also be unnecessary to repeat the the whole of the ninth chapter of Romans. As long as that remains in the Bible, no man shall be able to prove Arminianism. So long as that is written there, not the most violent contortions of the passage will ever be able to exterminate the doctrine of election from the Scriptures. Let us read such verses as these. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calls. It was said to her, The elder shall serve the younger. Then read the 22nd verse. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Romans 11:7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In the fifth verse of the same chapter we read, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And you no doubt all recollect the passage in 1 Corinthians 1, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things which are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Again, remember the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have my text, which methinks would be quite enough. But if you need any more, you can find them at your leisure, if we have not quite removed your suspicions as to the doctrine not being true. Methinks, my friends, that this overwhelming mass of Scripture testimony must stagger those who dare to laugh at this doctrine. What shall we say of those who have so often despised it and denied its divinity, who have railed at its justice and dared to defy God and call him an almighty tyrant when they have heard of his having elected so many to eternal life? Can you, O rejecter, cast it out of the Bible? Can you take the penknife of Jehude and and cut it out of the word of God? Would you be like the women at the feet of Solomon? And have the child rent in halves, that you might have your half? Is it not here in Scripture, and is it not your duty to bow before it and meekly acknowledge what you understand not, to receive it as the truth, even though you could not understand its meaning? I will not attempt to prove the justice of God in having thus elected some and left others. It is not for me to vindicate my master. He will speak for himself, and he does so where it says, Nay, but, O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? Who is he that shall say to his father, What hast thou begotten? Or to his mother, What hast thou brought forth? I am the Lord. I form the light, and I create darkness. I, the Lord, do all these things. Who are you that replies against God? Tremble and kiss his rod. Bow down and submit to his scepter. Impugn not his justice and arraign not his acts before your bar, O man. But there are some who say it is hard for God to choose some and leave others. Now I will ask you one question. Is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and walk in holiness? Yes, there is, says someone. I do. Well, then God has elected you. But another says, no, I I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. Why should you grumble then that God has not elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. If God this morning had chosen you to holiness... You say you you would not care for it. Do you not acknowledge that you prefer drunkenness to sobriety, dishonesty to honesty? You love this world's pleasures better than religion? Then why should you grumble that God has not chosen you to religion? If you love religion, he has chosen you to it. If you desire it, he has chosen you to it. If you do not, what right have you to say that God ought to have given you what you do not wish for? Supposing I had in my hand something which you do not value, and I said, I shall give it to such and such a person. 
You would have no right to grumble that I did not give it to you. You could not be so foolish as to grumble that the other has got what you do not care about. According to your own confession, many of you do not want religion, do not want a new heart, do not want a right spirit, do not want the forgiveness of sins, do not want sanctification. You do not want to be elected to these things. Then why are you grumbling? You count these things but as husks. Why should you complain of God who has given them to those whom he has chosen? If you believe them to be good and desire them, they are there for you. God gives liberally to all those who desire. First of all, he makes them desire. Otherwise, they never would. If you love these things, he has elected you to them, and you may have them. But if you do not, who are you that you should find fault with God when it is your own desperate will that keeps you from loving these things, your own simple self that makes you hate them? Suppose a man in the street would say, What a shame it is. I, I cannot have a seat in the chapel to hear what this man has to say. And suppose he says, I hate that preacher. I can't bear his doctrine, but still it's a shame that I have not a seat. (laughs) Would you expect a man to say so? No, you would at once say, that man does not care for it. Why should he trouble himself about other people having what they value and he despises? You do not like holiness. You do not like righteousness. If God has elected me to these things, has he hurt you by it? Ah, but say some, I, I thought it meant that God elected some to heaven and some to hell. Well, now, that's that's a very different matter from the gospel doctrine. He has elected men to holiness and to righteousness, and through that, to heaven. You must not say that he has elected these simply to heaven and others only to hell. He has elected you to holiness. If you love holiness, if any of you love to be saved by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ elected you to be saved. If any of you desire to have salvation, you are elected to have it if you desire it sincerely and earnestly. But if you don't desire it, why on earth would you be so preposterously foolish as to grumble because God gives that which you do not like to other people? Thus I have tried to say something with regard to the truth of the doctrine of election. Next time around we'll we'll, uh, finish this message of Charles Spurgeon. What a blessing. What a blessing. I trust that this is getting through to some of you who might have trouble with this doctrine. Well, you can access this series of messages online. It's at SpurgeonGems.com. This is the Hackberry House of Tosun, and this audio is being released on the 25th of January, 2023. And Lord willing, we will talk again real soon. Bye-bye.